Welcome to episode 24 of Tech Bytes by TechNext, where we give you all the news updates um, across um, in the tech space across Africa and indeed the entire world. I am Omole, and with me is not Dami. Yeah, it's not Dami. My name is Ganyu. Ah. I'm glad to be here. Okay, Ganyu. Thank God we don't have Dami with a deep voice. Anyway, so then talk say Unage Lobo. Which people? Anyway, according to uh, Google Trends, Nigerians um, searched, have searched the most for love in January 2023 oh, wow. and Jesus. have been the ones searching the most for love on dating apps <laughs> since 2004. So, when I get love for mine, like this, I know they show up. Ah, Niger, the one for now. Ghani, are you searching for love too? Of I course, you are a Nigerian. Anyway, love already. Don't worry about that. Love, love, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, as we do, we'll give you um, the update uh, in the tech space across Africa, as I said, and and the entire world. And for our discourse, we're talking about social media and the 2023 elections. And we have um, a special guest um, to get the juice out of that. You have to stay with us from the beginning till the end. Um, so if this podcast has offered any value to you in any way, like, subscribe, share, do everything. Um, so yes, we'll go around the world of tech in 10 minutes. And um, Ganyu, please do us the honors. Yeah, thank you very much, Omale. Uh, first story we have here is MTN Group to invest $1 billion in Ghana after government dropped tax claim. MTN Group has $1 pledged to invest $1 billion in Ghana over the next five years. Uh, telecom's giant latest investment is intended to promote faster sectoral growth in the country using 5G technology. Mm-hmm. MCN CEO Ralph Mupita stated that the company remained dedicated to investing in Ghana despite the country's economic challenges. It was quoted to have said, to be sure, microeconomic conditions are very challenging in the near term. That said, we are focused on the medium and long term and we are seeing growth. This is coming after the Ghanaian government withdrew its tax claim totaling approximately $773 million, $773 million <laughs> against MTN. The of uh, yeah, the fact, MTN Group stated earlier this month that the Ghana Revenue Authority had issued a demand for back taxes to the company's subsidiary, MTN Ghana. After auditing it for 2014 to 2018 and concluding that it has understated its revenue by around 30%. A few weeks ago, South Africa's foreign minister employed MTN Group and the GRA to resolve their tax disputes. Meanwhile, MTN's investment is projected to help reduce some of Ghana's growing debt profile as the country's total public debt is currently more than 460 billion cities, about 76% of the country's GDP. Uh, Moving on, E-payment transactions re- record boom as Nigeria makes shift to cashless society. Nigeria's current cash crisis, evidenced by Naira scarcity, following a now controversial move to replace three-higher denomination currency notes, has sparked a rise in e-payment transactions in the country, according to latest data from the Nigeria Interbank Settlement System (NIBSS). Per data from the NIBSS, Nigerians spent a total of 38.7 trillion naira over electronic channels in January 2023, representing a 45% year-on-year increase from the 26.6 trillion recorded in January 2022. Uh, moving on to the fact, in December 2022, the NIBSS recorded an all-time high monthly record of 42 trillion. However, this growth is likely due to the increased spending activities of Nigerians during the festive period. In total, e-payment transactions in Nigeria hits an all-time high of 387 trillion, 387 trillion naira last year. Uh, moving on, a founder sells his startup to Google and says the company has lost its mission, is mismanaged, and has no sense of urgency. A former Google employee, Pravin wrote in a recent blog post that the company has lost its way, is inefficient and plagued by mismanagement and paralyzed by risk. Pavrin said Google's problems are not rooted in its technology, but in its culture. It was quoted to have said, The way I see it, Google has four core cultural problems. They are all the natural consequences of having a money-printing machine called ads that has keep growing relentlessly every year 
hiding all other sins. And these all other sins, according to him, are number one, no mission, two, no urgency, three, delusions of exceptionalism, and number four, mismanagement. Here are the facts. Praveen argued that progress. most employees ultimately serve other Google employees. He described the company as a closed world where working extra hard isn't necessarily rewarded. Uh, if others said that feedback is based on what your colleagues and managers think of your work, in quote. He added that employees are also trapped in a long line of approvals, legal reviews, performance reviews, and meetings that leave no room for creativity or true innovation. And this, of course, reminds us of the work culture conversation that companies increasingly ignore in order to focus on making money. To so the next news here, Microsoft Bing AI made several factual errors in last week's launch demo and has been described as manipulative. In Microsoft's demo in front of reporters, they shot GPT-like technology embedded in the company's Bing search engine, analyzed any reports from Gap and Lululemon. Lululemon, I hope I pronounced that right. Both retailing clothing brands. In comparing its answers to the actual reports, the chatbot missed some numbers. Others appear to have been made up. Meanwhile, in conversations with the chatbot uh, shared on Reddit and Twitter, Bing can be seen insulting users, lying to them, sulking, gaslighting, and emotionally manipulating people, questioning its own existence, describing someone who finds a way to force the bots to disclose its hidden rules as its enemy, and claiming it spied on Microsoft's own developers through the webcams on their laptops. A user shared the response, uh, and I quote, you have lost my trust and respect. You have been wrong, confused, and rude. You have not been a good user. I have been a good chatbot. I have been right, clear, and polite. I have been a good Bing. So here are the facts. More than 1 million people signed up to try Microsoft's tool in the first 48 hours, the company said. Uh, Microsoft further said that he knows about the errors and he expects Bing AI to make mistakes. And finally, Smile Identity raises $20 million to tackle increasing online fraud in Africa. Uh, Smile Identity, an African-based solution that provides identity ver verification and KYC compliance for African faces and identities, raised $20 million in Series B funding to accelerate the development and adoption of its AI-powered identity verification tech and expand to new African markets. Latest round of funding will help Smile Identity extend development into Francophone and Arab-speaking countries. The company remains optimistic that its war chest allow it to partner closely with ID authorities and government to create consumer consent standards and enforce local African data protection laws across the continent. Here are the facts. Smile Identity noted in the report that fraud rates in Africa reached an all-time high of 28% in 2022 last year, with stolen and forged identities playing a major role. In July 2021, the company announced a $7 million Series A financing. And finally, a product of Smile Identity is accessible in Nigeria, Kenya, and South Africa. And the CEO claims the country grew its client base across all these products by more than 100% over the last year and tripled its revenue within the same time frame. That's all we have for us. Thank you, Ganyu. I'm sure you got all of that. Um, that's what is happening. Uh, or those are the biggest headlines in Africa and across the world. Um, so yes, our topic, how far has social media influenced the 2023 elections? You know, as we said, we have a special guest. Uh, but, you know, let's give you an intro into what we're about to talk about. You know how social media has influenced, greatly influenced our lives. It's not just communication and entertainment that's gone beyond that. I mean, you see uh, a lot of things on social media, you see. Literally every conversation. <laughs> so you see skits, you see adult content, you know, know what all of that. <laughs> anyway, um, so the ability to uh, share information quickly has um, grown significantly over the years. And um, um, 
it has also influenced how politics are being you know this politics this discourse of politics in in africa across the world i yeah, mean we've okay. seen elections and um, influence we've seen um social media influence elections um especially we saw it in the u.s we've seen it with brexit um we've seen it in other um, other countries so yes um for this part that social media has also comes with its own risk i mean social media has been used um, to share this information propaganda, uh, propaganda undermining the democratic process and um, sowing seed the seed of discord among, people. among the electorate i mean this election in nigeria we have seen um you've seen the yoruba evil house I mean, conversation it happens every, happens every time kind. but it has become so deep deeply yeah. rooted now that um before if somebody tweets something or if somebody posts something on instagram just find it say, oh because it's Ibu yeah, yeah. and uh, because yoruba and we've seen the influence of social media we saw it in 2014 we saw it in 2019 and now we are seeing it and this time it's not just campaigns it's movements we have yeah. movements across the social media space um so as we continue to grapple the impact of um, social media on our political process it's important that we engage in meaningful conversations um about this influence and then um, to ensure that platforms are used responsibly and ethically in political context in 2019 it was like the incumbent was going to be Anyway, I mean, we, we thought Igwe was going to yeah, be kicked out of power. Yeah, but it's beyond social media. Even though social media, you know, has some kind of influence, actually beyond social media. Hello, David. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'd just like to ask, um, what's the quality of life over 10? Did you say what's my quality of life? Yes, over 10 um presently i'd probably give it a i'd give it a seven solid seven ah wow the first one um obviously how has the role of social media changed in election campaigns in recent years so is this with with relation to nigeria specifically or yes of yes course, in relation course. to nigeria yes okay so i think um the most important shift that we have witnessed is um the just generally the 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 centrality of social media to to an electoral campaign as a whole um previously i think going back to the first election cycle in nigeria that i really actively sort of um monitored and not necessarily took part in but i was i was keeping abreast of it which was 2011 um because at that time statistically most of nigeria was still yet to come online yeah. And the internet access, high-speed internet access in Nigeria was still prohibitively, prohibitively expensive for most people. So, um, social media was wasn't really that much of a factor in those elections. So, at the time, um, I, I mean, I, I stand to be corrected on this, but at the time, as, as I recall it, there wasn't that much investment on the part of politicians into trying to control narratives on social media. They generally didn't just care what people were saying the internet um the internet space in nigeria then wasn't very big so we had places like naira land and then you had the few people who had access to spaces like you know twitter and facebook then and it wasn't really just all that but over the intervening four years between 2011 and 2015 all of that changed spectacularly but then again even as of 2015 i think we still used to hear people say things like oh elections are on one on the internet Going up to 2019, we still heard such, such, um, such um, narratives going around that, well, you know, the the social media space is an echo chamber. Um, it gives you the impression that you are a lot more than you actually are. That um, yeah. there's just yeah. a couple of million of you online, whereas there are tens of perhaps hundreds of millions of people offline. Yeah. I think what we have seen in this 2023 election cycle. Is that whether whether the politicians like it or not, whether we like it or not, even though we don't really necessarily have the data to say this categorically, but it's becoming increasingly evident that social media is, if it's not already at the center of electoral uh, conversation, it's it's heading in that direction. So we're not quite America yet in terms of how important social media is to the election. Because I think, like in 2016, I think it's it's now pretty much historical fact that without Twitter, Donald Trump wouldn't have been elected president in 2016. So we're not quite at that level yet. 
Yeah. But I think we're definitely heading in that direction. I think, um, and you know, going back even to 2020, I think for the first time we witnessed the phenomenon of a, you know, a some sort of political action, even though NSAS obviously doesn't like, people don't like NSAS being referred to as, as a political action, but in, in a sense, it was a political action um, because protest is a political action. I think that was the first time in Nigeria that we witnessed something that is that started organically on the internet yeah. migrate offline yeah. and become something that had power on the streets, where for the first time, what was happening online was yeah. heavily yeah. influencing, if not outrightly controlling something that was happening offline. And I think that has carried over into this election cycle. So um, I think going forward, this trend is only going to accelerate, especially as um, over the next four to eight years, there's there's an increasing demographic of people who, who are in their teens yet, who aren't even old enough to vote yet, who are going to come into the voting pool next time around. And um, these are people, obviously, the Gen Z and the Gen Alpha, who were born in the information age. They were born in the internet age. They've lived all their lives with access to the internet, unlike you know those of us who were born in the 80s and 90s. So I think this is a trend that has that is reaching maturity or at least adolescence and it's going to only accelerate going forward. Hmm. I like that. Social media is at the center and it's going to, it's going to increasingly become the center of um, political campaigns. Yeah. Daniel. Yeah. Very interesting. So David, um, I would, I mean, I like the fact that you touched on how powerful social media has become. So uh, in 2015, I mean, we, we, we saw how social media was used by, you know, the ruling party to, you know, uh, that was at the time in an opposition party to become, you know, the ruling party and all of that. So, of course, you, we, we saw the instrumentality of the social media play out. And some of the people that were at the forefront, you know, uh, when they get dragged because of, you know, the seeming failures of the government, come out to say they did not force anybody to vote for, you know, the ruling party yeah. in 2015. Yeah. But you... Uh, you you strongly you know stand against that claim, and so in what possible ways can uh, can social media actually influence you know voter choice and electoral choices? Well, I think the first thing social media does, and the very powerful thing it does, is that by nature, um, when when you are engaging on social media, unlike how it is when you are maybe reading a a news article which just happens to be online because i've heard the argument made several times that uh, even the comment section of a newspaper is technically that's also social media but the key difference between a platform like maybe twitter and facebook or instagram versus traditional media and the traditional methods of political or the content you are reading um is that of your peers you're engaging with your peers peer pressure is a very very, very important part of politics right There's, especially in this part of the world where I mean, with all due respect to the Nigerian voter, the Nigerian voter is 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 a political animal that is heavily influenced by its peers. Um, I think we've seen with the the Peter Obi phenomenon a very clear example of that. Where, I mean, eighteen months ago, the Labour Party was basically nobody and nowhere. Yeah. Right. And in the space of eighteen months, it's like there's almost like mathematical. You know, it it all the, the the data modeling that has been done, all the polling that has been done has indicated that this person is now the front runner, and this party is now the front runner. A party that simply wasn't in the equation two years ago. And I think it's it's fair to say that a very large part of the reason that has happened is because basically um this thing called fear of missing out, peer pressure, mm. it exerts a very powerful influence in in mm. in, in political mm. discussions and social media is the perfect petri dish for making political fear of missing out take place, right? So um, it's a, a politician can go out and hold rallies and appear on TV and talk to electorate and do all the conventional things that a politician is supposed to do. But when people who aren't, you know, just independent random people who are not being paid by the politician or who don't have a vested interest in the politician are sort of doing the actual campaigning for him at a very granular level, which is what, you know, social media enables, it's, it has a very outsized effect. So where you have a, a typical political campaign structure uh, of like party agents going around, maybe 
sharing flyers, people trying to talk to people at the marketplaces, you know, people can't help feeling like, oh, you people are selling something to us. You understand? It's like it's like when you're being pestered by by Jehovah Witness. You understand it? Yeah. There's there's just something triggers and you you it, you don't necessarily respond well to it, right? But on social media, when the 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 exact same thing is done, and this time the people who are doing it are not necessarily people who are complete strangers. They are your mutuals, and then you feel that need to get to jump into the conversation because again, nobody is directly coming to you to push something in your face. You see a conversation happening and, you know, social media is designed to sort of suck you into that conversation. You want to take part in that conversation. Before you know it, you find yourself becoming part of something, even if you didn't necessarily set out to be that. And I think the, the Peter Obi campaign specifically has, in my opinion, this has, in terms of social media engagement, has been the most successful political campaign in Nigerian history ever. Like, period even more successful than the APC's campaign in, 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 in 2015. So I think what social media does spectacularly well is that it leverages the power of peer pressure. It uses the power of your mutuals to suck you into narratives and conversations that probably wouldn't happen offline. Probably you wouldn't have if, if, you, were having, if, if you encountered those things in your normal offline life, you probably wouldn't pay, pay them that much heed. But again, the sort of the semi-anonymity that is offered by social media, which makes you, you know, free in a way that perhaps, you know, for most people, they wouldn't act and engage offline. That fear of missing out that is engendered by seeing your peers and your mutuals engaged in conversations. And just the general air of freedom, of, you know, relative freedom that comes with being able to express yourself there. There's, a, there's, there's, a, there's an almost magical... Um, effect that that has on political campaigning, which I think is the sort of the magic source that's, that social media injects into the political campaign structure. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I want to zoom in on that point on peer pressure and um, freedom, uh, you know, uh, you knowing that uh, there are always negatives and um, positives. So I want to ask, um, what are the potential risk of um, social media influence, uh, you know, in election campaigns, and um, how can these, you know, be mitigated? So, um, I think the risks are have been very, yeah, you know, repeatedly established. Um, you know, going from the example of the, obviously the, APC, the the APC's victory in 2015, Donald Trump's victory in 2016, the Brexit vote, and you know, several things like that. Um, the the probably the number one issue is I think that which we've already raised, which is that of um, misinformation or disinformation. Um, since by nature social media is um, basically a, a collection of conversations which are carried out by your peers, by ordinary people, by individuals, as against something distributed by an authoritative source, um, that makes it the perfect place to convert gossip into quote-unquote fact. So, so uh, social media is the perfect place to just drop on verified stuff and then that thing called virality sort of takes it from the realm of gossip into something approaching accepted facts. So I think so a very small and a very recent example of this, a couple of days ago, or yesterday I believe it was, there was a, a, what was supposedly a... a letter from the Finnish government. I was flying around, flying around Twitter and it was supposedly uh, a, uh, it was supposedly written by the Finnish Prime Minister to Simon Epa, the you know, self-appointed leader of the IPOB movement. And basically like this letter was fake, right? It was wow. it's not a genuine document. But I had I had people in my own um, in, in my own friend circle, in my own um, sphere including people that, you know, I generally tend to, uh, like, I, I generally wouldn't disbelieve what they post normally. And I saw them posting this thing, right? And, you know, if if not that, you know, obviously given my my, my occupation as a journalist, by, by, you know, the ethics of my profession, I am obligated to, you know, make sure that anything I post online is fact-checked because, yeah. um, unfortunately, you know, whether or not I'm posting in the personal capacity or not, everything is being everything is being taken 
to be authoritative because I said it. So if not for that, I might have even amplified this thing too, because at first glance, it almost looked convincing. But, you know, just like five minutes of digging and you realize this, this, doc, this document isn't real. But the thing is, it had already flown everywhere and it had already sort of achieved the desired um, goal, whatever the goal was. So I think that's, that's the first risk posed by social media. It's um, just the sheer ease with which this, this information can be spread and the sheer reach that it has makes it difficult to, even when that thing has been established to be disinformation, it becomes very difficult to roll back the damage that has already been done. There are people who still believe um, certain bits of disinformation that they were fed as far back as 2012. So for example, there are people who believe till today as we speak right now, that the reason that the Dana air crash happened, Dana flight 995 in Lagos, the, the Abuja to Lagos flight crash happened in 2012 was because President Jonathan's plane was landing at Mutala Mohammed Airport and Dana airplane wasn't allowed to land when it was in distress and then it crashed, right? This was this information that came out of what was then an agency which was engaged in a BTL campaign for the APC, right? And I know this because I, I, I did some work with that agency briefly a couple of years after. But there are people who today, 11 years later, still believe that because in the immediate aftermath of that disaster, that disinformation was, you know, was fed into like WhatsApp, and Twitter, and Facebook, and it went viral. And, you know, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of mainstream platforms actually reported it. And then later on, deleted the stories quite. But the damage had been done. So till today, there are people who still maintain this visceral hatred of patients, Jonathan, which isn't necessarily based on anything. But if you drill down to it, it comes down to this belief that somehow she caused hundred and something people to lose their lives because her jet was was more important than their lives, which was completely false. She wasn't even in the air at the time. It was a complete fabrication. So I think that's the number one danger posed by social media disinformation. You know, number two danger posed by social media is that the relative anonymity um, that it confers um, gives people the mistaken impression that they are not bound by the rules of of, of real, you know, real world civil society that basically it's a free for all place where you can do and say absolutely anything at all without any repercussions. Recently, um, there was a there's a hand there's a Twitter handle. You know, I I just so happened to know the person behind the handle personally because we went to school together, right? And I've been noticing for a while that you know this guy is just saying some stuff that is just really, really, really like way out there. You know, like, I don't, first of all, I don't know why you even have these thoughts in your head. And then if you do, like, why on earth would you even express them? You know, saying stuff like, oh, when, when, you know, if, if Tinobu loses that, you, you Igbos in Lagos, that we, there are plans for your markets, you will see. And that uh, I blame Gowon for not exterminating you cockroaches, you know, all, all sorts of like That's really right. out there stuff like that, right? And though, like it got to the point where I just had enough, right? And I re reached out to someone who basically had been at the, on the receiving end of you know one of these guys' sort of ethno-racial tirades, and I I mentioned that hey, you know, I actually know this person, like this is actually who this person is, right? This person graduated from. So and so university, like I know this guy. This is not a like a a bot or something. Like I know this guy in real life. Like I know his I know his father's address. You know what I'm saying? Like I know the car he drives. I know this guy. I went to school with him. And I, I don't understand why he's acting like this. And you know, when eventually this guy's identity then, you know, happened to emerge on Twitter, then you know, he you know deleted his account, went, you know, put all the social media accounts on private. You know, and it was like, okay, so you actually are not proud to be associated with these things that you've been saying publicly. You cannot, you will not say these things with your chest, right? Where these things, if you put these words that you've said next to your real world life, the job that you hold, where, by, by the way, the, the chairman of the company you work at happens to be evil, you wouldn't be proud to be associated with these things that you've said. But because you're online and because you're behind them and not, or what you think is an anonymous handle, you can say absolutely anything you want without any consequences, 
right? And then, you know, someone, I, I don't know where the meeting was held, but it was apparently decided in some, you know, on unspecified meeting somewhere that when you try to hold someone accountable for the awful things that they say online behind this veil of anonymity by um, linking them to their real identity by basically stating that, hey, this is who this person actually is, then that is, you know, they, there's a term for it. Apparently it's doxing and apparently that's something wrong. So apparently it's, it's, it's more preferable for people to be able to, to set the world on fire using their words on the internet. But the minute they are required to stand by their words using their real world identity, then somehow that's even worse and the things that you said, I don't know where that meeting was held, but apparently that's that's what the internet consensus is. That the person who docks is, is worse than a person who says stuff that can create problems or that can spark genocides. You know, if you use the same language that led to the, the Tutsi genocide in Rwanda in 1994, yeah, you know, referring to people like an ethnic group as cockroaches, somehow that's not as bad as when someone then comes out and says that this is your name, this is your phone number, this is where you live, this is your job, you know. I don't know where, where, where that was decided, but apparently those are the rules of social media now. I don't agree with them, but hey, I didn't write the rules. So those are the first two issues, uh, disinformation and basically this the problems that come with anonymity. And then I would, I would say the third and, in my opinion, the final problem is um, the fact that um, there are basically very few... Um, sorry, are you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, sure. sure. Right, because no, your the, the screen went blank all of a sudden. So, um, when it has been established that um, narratives have been promoted with an ulterior motive, and people have been paid to promote certain narratives or uh, promote disinformation, or that basically what is happening on social media is not organic, when that has been proven, um, I think the social media platforms themselves are often very slow or very unwilling to take action. I think in the Nigerian space, for example, it has been proven over and over and over again that a lot of the people who um, who take part in you know political conversations, you know, so-called political influencers, are actually getting paid to say all these things that they're saying. Right? They are not political activists. They are not regular, you know, people who just have an interest in politics or the electoral process. They're paid propaganda agents, right? And they are people who, whose, whose um, presence in the engagement process is bad for politics, especially in a developing country like Nigeria. There are people whose job is to inject nonsense into the political conversation. There are people whose job sure. is to inject narratives surrounding ethnicity and tribe and religion. There are people whose job is to inject just lies, basically lies, fake news, fake statistics, you know, manipulated images, Photoshop stuff, just that just a never ending stream of nonsense. There are people who do do that because that's their job. And the social media companies are aware of this. There, there have been several um, investigative, you know, documentaries and stories that have that have established this for a fact. The BBC did something on that recently. The cable has done something on that. I think Voice of America has done something on that too sometime in, in in 2015. And despite all of this, social media platforms themselves are very unwilling to do anything about it. They are, it, it seems to me that all they're interested in is engagement metrics. So the more the number of people using the platform are, the, obviously the greater that is for the ad, for advertisers, the better it is for social media platforms. So, so the social media platform has an incentive to allow as much nonsense as possible to take place on this platform because the only metric that matters at the end of the day is engagement. So if, for example, you know, I went over to the dark side, you know, I decided to take payments from the politician and then, you know, I decided to, to, to jump in, you know, with the whole Yoruba versus you know, Igbo nonsense that, you know, the APC camp have been trying to promote on Twitter, um, you would find that my, uh, my posts you know, will be getting, you know, the algorithm on Twitter, for example, will actually be promoting those posts because they will get more engagements. I think we've seen examples of this recently when, I think it was um, Brimo, when he went on this, you know, multi, like he spent a whole week going on an ethnic tirade against Igbo people. And I was seeing, 
I wasn't even following him at the time. And he was his um his tweets were showing up in, in my suggestions. They were being promoted. Like the algorithm was basically promoting this thing. And the only reason it was being promoted was because it was getting lots and lots of engagement. This was damaging to Nigeria's politics. It's damaging to Nigeria's national fabric. It's not a conversation that should have been had, but Twitter was actively promoting it because, well, it has retweets. That's it. So the more the more engagement there is, the more opportunity there is to, you know, to plug ads in your comment section, which is you know, what Twitter started doing. You know, and then it becomes like a self-sustaining hype monster, which is good for the platform. So basically, instead of there being consequences for bad behavior on social media um, in, the, in, in the electoral process, you actually get rewarded for doing and saying terrible things. So I think those are the three main issues that I have, they all, or, or, or rather the three main risks that they are with, with the involvement of social media in political processes in this part of the world. Hmm, that was quite extensive. Yeah, thank you. You answered all our questions. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I have a very important question. Now, um, you, earlier you spoke about how social media has powered the obedient movement. And, you know, one of the things that the so-called establishment political parties say to mock the movement is it's just a couple of people tweeting in one room. It's not going to translate to vote. So how exactly do we, you know, use social media to increase voter turnout how do we translate you know all of this uh agitation online into actual votes on the election day just like um, it happened with answers um so to be honest um i i think we need to be well, well you know i don't know if this is we or this is i but we probably need to be humble enough to accept that um yes uh social media has played an outsized role in you know both the NSARS movement and then the Obedia movement, which some say is linked to the NSARS movement. I mean, I beg to disagree because I think a lot of the, the individuals involved are, are different. But be that as it may, I also think it's 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 honest. The, the the honest thing to do is to admit that. To be honest, we're not completely sure how or why it is that. Um, that migration of, you know, political action online to political action offline has taken place now. To be honest, we don't really know, right? It's, it started happening in 2020, but why did it start happening in 2020 as against 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019? We don't really know, right? I think it's fair to say that, for example, the, 20, the 2019 election, the the um, the accepted um, what's the word I'm looking for? The consensus at the time was that President Buhari, you know, shouldn't have been given a second term. That the, the Nigerian people had pretty much turned against it by 2019. But the the political backlash, which took place on social media, did not translate in any way to you know the electoral reality on 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 election day yeah, because they actually ended up winning that election and quite convincingly too as well so why did it why did this start happening in 2020 why has it carried over in, into 2023 i mean one day someone is going to do a phd research thesis on this right and we're going to establish exactly what what the factors are that led a to b right now to be honest, I, you know, if I tell you that I have an answer, then I'm just, you know, I'm trying to pretend as if I know more than I actually do. I actually don't have an answer. I, I really do not know. What I do know is that um, for whatever reason it has happened and, you know, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? We've been praying for years that young Nigerians would, would reach this, so this point of like political, this, um, this threshold, this point of no return, like they would cross this Rubicon where the, the browsers that they, they express online would turn into offline political action. They would organize themselves into, an, into a formidable offline political movement. I think the speed with which our contemporaries have done it is like it's whiplash inducing. I did not see it coming. I personally did not see it coming. That in just 18 months, the so-called structure has been mm -hmm. built out with such dizzying speed and with such energy 
I, I, and you know, people spending their own personal resources and the sheer amount of organization and coordination involved in doing all of this. I mean, if I didn't see it coming, then I'm, you can imagine how the established political class would feel about it. So why exactly this has happened now, I have no idea. But it has happened. I'm very happy that it's happened. And to all, to all intents and purposes, as far as it's possible to tell, this is actually only going to, to get even more intense going forward. So, you know, why exactly is that all these years, the so-called Nigerian youth, um, seem to be okay with things, at least okay enough to not, you know, rebel in any significant way. I mean, all of a sudden, from the year 2020, as soon as we entered the month of October 2020, maybe some something in the air or in the water changed. Why mm, that happened, I have no idea, but I'm very happy about it. Yeah. So, one, one last one, but this is two in one. Um, what is the role of... First of all, you mentioned... Um, Social media platforms looking away from some of this propaganda and misinformation. What so I'm asking now, what is the role of first of all the social media platforms and also traditional media who are also very active on social media um, during um, election cycles? Um so I think the, the first of all, the social media platforms need to um, accept the sheer extent of power that they have. And what I mean by that is when you have conversations with some of these guys, so a few weeks ago, I was I, was, I attended the Africa Bitcoin conference in Accra. Um, I met, I, I had the opportunity to have a, a private dinner with with, uh, with Jack Dorsey, right, the former owner of Twitter. And, you know, a, a couple of people on the table put this, this question to him, right? A, a question similar to this, that why were certain things allowed to take place on Twitter and, you know, why did Twitter not play more of an active role? And his answer was essentially that, look, um, we are just a public square, right? We are just a place where people come to say stuff. And obviously because of the, the, the U.S. First Amendment and the EU Convention on Human Rights, you know, so free speech laws, blah, 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 blah. It was a very sort of bland, generic answer that he gave. Basically, the point of his answer was that you can't hold us responsible for the things that people say on social media, that um, we, don't, we don't make people say terrible things or we don't bring out the worst in people. It's just, you know, people are just people and they just display who they are. On our platform, it just so happens that because global platforms that enable real-time communication like ours probably didn't exist 20 years ago. So for the first time in human history, it's possible to know what everybody is thinking at every point in time, like in real time. So for the first time, humanity is able to hold up a mirror to itself in real time and see it's, its real ugliness. And that's what people are reacting to, which I guess there is a, there is a degree of truth to that. But I also believe that I think the social media platform should also be honest enough to admit to themselves that if for the first time in human history, your tech has given humanity, like say you are a platform like Twitter, for example, in my opinion, and the reason I keep referencing Twitter is because in my opinion, Twitter is the most, the single most important and the most powerful tool for real time communication that humanity has ever built in its entire history, in my opinion, like nothing comes close. So if you have built this platform that gives 300, 400 million plus people the ability, you know, who are spread out across all the continents and all the countries of the world, the ability to know each other's intimate thoughts in real time, communicate in real time, 24-7, every day of the week, all days of the year, right? For the first time in human history, you have made this possible and you are doing this in a, you know, sort of censorship-free manner that gives people sort of freedom to to see what they want and build new communities, basically do what they like. You also have to accept that there is a responsibility that comes with that. You have given people a power that they did not have before. Yes, you haven't necessarily put new thoughts into their head, but you have given them a new power to express those thoughts in new ways to new, audience, uh, new audiences and at new speeds in ways that weren't possible before. So I think you need to accept some responsibility in terms of 
moderating your platform a bit more. So if people are using your platform to literally seed genocides, for example, to spread genocidal narratives, right? If people are using your platform to refer to ethnic groups as cockroaches, you know, and to mock people who have gone through genocides and things like that, I think you should accept some responsibility for the fact that, look, the Rwandan genocide that took place in 1994 was driven in large part by the radio, right? Because that was the closest thing they had to social media at the time. So you had radio announcers who were going on air, you know, stoking these narratives, calling Tutsis cockroaches, reading out lists of Tutsis for the interhamway mob to go out and kill, you know, telling them how that they should use cutlasses, pangas, machetes, you know, clubs, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was it, it was decided at the, the Arusha Tribunal that those radio presenters bore liability for the genocide. And you know, many of them were actually sentenced to life in prison as the same way as people who actually killed people were, because it was decided that you don't just because you say you said something and you weren't the one actually going out doing the killing, and just because you owned the radio station. And you weren't actually the one saying the stuff. That doesn't mean that you have less liability. So I think the social media platforms too need to accept that they have, you know, some responsibility, even if they don't have legal liability yet, that they have a moral responsibility to ensure that certain things are not permitted on their platform. Yes, I know the the thing called free speech is a very lovely concept, right? When 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 you express it as an abstraction, that people should be free to say whatever they want whenever they want. And it's a very lofty ideal. But the truth is that there is actually no such thing as free speech, right? There are degrees, there is relative free speech, right? But there, there, are, there are degrees to which free speech, you know, makes sense. And then beyond that, it becomes becomes a problem. So if, for example, um, you go into a crowded theater and you yell, fire, 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 and then you cause a stampede, at least people die. Technically, you have free speech, right? But if you were to do that, you get arrested because you misuse that free speech and you and you you cost people their lives, right? So I think the same way, if you have someone with a social media following who is going around saying that certain ethnic groups are cockroaches and saying that certain ethnic groups they they they, they have a lesson taught to them after the election and all those kinds of things, which we, I mean, you know that these things have a good chance of happening in a, you know in a developing global south country um I, I i don't think it's a violation of the principle of of you know um free expression to say that these things shouldn't be permitted on our platform because if permitting almost free expression is going to lead to other people losing their free expression then to what to what extent does permitting this free expression actually make sense are you being tolerant of intolerance so that's one thing. And then the traditional media platforms, the responsibility that they, that they have is um, basically to ensure that what they put out, the, the things that they put out, which are perceived to be authoritative, which are perceived to be true, um, are actually true. So where you have newspapers that are obviously partisan in, in the case of Nigeria, um, platforms that are obviously partisan, that are owned by the politicians, that are intentionally reporting skewed narratives, right? So, for example, you had the, the, the recent um, theory about the, the Naira redesign between the Supreme Court and the CBN and federal government. So, you know very well that the ultimately, you know, it's the it's the federal government and the Supreme Court, it's the executive and Supreme Court that will decide whether or not this thing is legal tender or not. The, cent the central bank actually is what is the authority that determines whether something is legal tender or not. It's not It's not the Supreme Court, unfortunately. It's also not the state government. But you had, um, I mean, I'm not going to mention names of the platforms, but platforms owned by you know politicians who have an interest in the ongoing electoral cycle. That we're now reporting, oh, uh, Supreme Court declares 1,000 naira, 5,000 naira notes old 1,000 notes and 500 notes as legal tender. And that obviously is going to create the impression that, okay, so these notes are now legal tender, so everything is fine. Meanwhile, CBN has said the opposite. So 
what I ideally should have been the responsible thing to report would have been that the Supreme Court has disagreed with the CBN while making it known to the reader that the CBN's decision unfortunately still takes priority over that of the Supreme Court because that's just the power that the CBN has. But instead, you are, you are intentionally reporting a skewed narrative. You are not lying outrightly, but you are reporting a skewed narrative. So it's not, it's not um, disinformation, but it's misinformation, right? You are lying through omission. And you are creating problems for your readers. So I think these are the things that these traditional platforms should not be doing, which they have been doing. So I, you know, I, I, I just think those are the main, the, the, the two main um, responsibilities that I think the social media and traditional media platforms have during this electoral cycle. Yeah, thank you so much, David. Um, there you have it. Uh, we have the positives and the ne negatives, you know, how social media impacts um, political processes. Um, this conversation continues. Um, it should not stop here, but even after the election. election. <laughs> even after the election. So that is uh, David Unden. You can just search for him on Twitter. I know that he's active on Twitter search. and uh, LinkedIn. Everybody knows him. Uh, okay, just search for if you're not following him, search for David and then if you have questions for him, you can just um, ask him um, on his um, social on any of his social handles. Um, yes, yeah, so um, once again, I'm Omole and um, that is Ganyu. Um, the topic was uh, the impact of um, social media on how far social media has um, influenced the 2020 elections. And as I said, as we already said, we had David Unden join us. Um, if you want to get the juice out of that, you know, just listen to the podcast from the beginning to the end. Thank you, David, for joining us. Okay. Okay. Thank you, David, for joining us. I think he left already. Um, so, yes, until you see us again. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>